morning, Southbridge. We're glad that you're here today. I hope that uh, you've had a, a great week. Hopefully you've been in the Word on your own. And uh, just as Julianne was praying, growing in your spiritual journey as Jesus mediates for you. And then also, I know some of you, maybe that's not the case. Maybe you haven't been in the Word. Hopefully what we get a taste of this morning will give you enough appetite to desire to dig in on your own and see what the Lord has for you uh, on a regular basis. And before we jump into the scriptures this morning, just a couple things as a way of announcement for our church. Uh, one, we're going to be celebrating communion this morning, and so uh, towards the end of the service we're going to be doing that. Lord willing, you'll be getting your heart ready, and you can even spend some time in repentance now. Um, you don't have to listen to the announcements if you want to repent, so you can feel free to do that and uh, get ready for what the Lord wants to do and how he wants to meet with you in that. Then also after the service today, we're going to have a picnic, and so at 1230, we're going to be going over to Hope Rain's current location on Old Creedmoor Road. You'll see some information about that in your worship program. Um, there's a picnic today. If you want more information on that, you can go to the guest services kiosk, first-time guest services, um, or the guest services kiosk when you first open, when you walk in the door and uh, come through the front doors there, and uh, just ask any questions you might have about that, but basic, here's the summary. If you want to come over to that and you forgot to RSVP, grab some food. I don't know what you bring for a picnic. I'm the worst guy to ask. Ask someone else. Maybe potato salad, buy some chips, soda. I don't know, but uh, come on over there, and uh, we're going to have a picnic together, so hopefully you'll be able to hang out with us. Our folks tend to hang out well, and if there's somebody you don't know at our church and you want to get to know them, uh, great opportunity. Maybe there's some people you didn't even know went to our church. They go to a different service or whatever it is, and uh, you're able to connect with some different people at our church, and if you're new, it's a great way to get to know some, some more people, and if you're new, um, we're also doing Next Steps today. So after this service in Theater 12, I believe it is, looking at your worship program to check my facts on that. Um, in Theater 12, we're going to be doing Next Steps, which is not making you a member of our church, but it's the next step in getting plugged in at our church and moving towards membership, which memberships com- committing to one another, essentially. Um, some of you have attended this church for a long time. You're not a member. Uh, it'd be time for you to take that step. So if you're here today and you're not a member of our church, if you don't know if you're a member, maybe assume you are because you've just been here for a long time, like it just kind of happens. It doesn't work that way. Um, it's kind of like you don't just date for a long time and all of a sudden you're married. Uh, you actually go through some ceremony and covenanting with each other. And so Next Step is part of the process, like premarital counseling, you could say. So why don't you check out Next Step today if you've never been to that before. Maybe you've been at our church for a long time and you want to see, has anything changed? What's going on with that? So Next Step's class, Theater 12. Let me pray for us. And we're going to be back in Philippians today. So if you want to get, get your way in the Bible there, Philippians chapter 3. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you've given us your word. Thank you that you've given us your spirit. Thank you that you want to be with us. You didn't just create this world and spin it into motion, that you want relationship with us and you gave us your son. And Father, I pray that you would help connect people to your son through this message today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 3 is where we're going to be. We're going to focus in today in verses 17 through 21, but I'm going to do a little bit more review than normal because we took a break last week. For those of you who weren't here, uh, last week was Mother's Day, and we took a break and did a special, because we love moms so much, we did Proverbs chapter 31 and did a special message for moms. We still love you moms, but we're going to jump back into Philippians today. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 17, and really today's message ties to the two that were right before this in the book of Philippians. And so all of chapter 3 goes together, and if you remember, I was basically asking you for two weeks in a row the same question. What's the most important thing in your life? The way I asked it was by saying, what's the one thing for which you'd lose everything else? Because that's the language Paul uses in the text. He talks about how he was a high achiever. He had the best schooling, had all these career accomplishments. He was exceeding everybody that was his age. He was a Pharisee, which was an elite group. He was born in the right family. But he considered all of that a loss in comparison to knowing Christ. When he examined his life, because the unexamined life is not worth living, when he examined his life, when he considered these things, he compared them all a loss in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. What's the one thing for you? For him, it was knowing Christ. What's the one thing in your life for which you'd lose everything else? Extreme examples of drug addict, they'd lose everything for that next fix. Another extreme example is the extreme hedonist, the person that's pursuing pleasure 
And so they'd be willing to lose everything for an affair. They'd be willing to lose everything for a vacation. They'd be willing to give up. They'd sacrifice so much to have some pleasurable experience. And sometimes it's as simple as a meal, which sounds ridiculous, but they would. If they think that that thing will bring them the pleasure they're ultimately lacking in their hearts. For some people, it's accomplishment. If I could just get to this place, this office, this job title, this whatever it is. For some people, it's if I could get dad's pat on the back. It's many things, job, family, health. What is it for you? What's the one thing for which you'd lose everything else? Today, we're going to talk about, as Christians, how we should be living the cross-centered life. Life. Today, Philippians chapter 3, we're going to focus on verses 17 through 21, talking about the cross-centered life, living the cross-centered life. And because we haven't been in Philippians for a little bit here, I'm going to start reading back in verse 7. So if you have a copy of the scripture, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 7, right after Paul's talked about a bunch of his accomplishments. He was born into the right circumstances, circumcised in the eighth day of a great tribe, and all the things that he did, his for zeal persecuting the church, he says in verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Accounting language, everything that was a credit to me is now a debt. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider when I examine my life, everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For your sake, I've lost all things. And Paul lost a lot in following Christ, lost his reputation, and the scholarly community he was involved in. Lost his job, loses the security of being at home. He's continually on travel, continually suffering. He said, I consider them dung. Rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not things I do, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And then really his mission statement of his life, his personal mission statement, I want to know Christ. It's desire language. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Lofty goals. In case you think he's already obtained it, verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all this. I've already been made perfect. Paul hasn't arrived either. As long as we're alive, we have not arrived. But I press on. It starts to use athletic imagery about running after Jesus. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. I haven't arrived. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind anything that hinders me from moving forward with Christ... I press on towards what is ahead. I strain towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And then I love this line. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. God will clarify this. Paul doesn't need to argue about it. He's so confident in the fact that Jesus should be our one thing that we'd be willing to lose everything else for. He's so confident that anyone that picks anything else is wrong. God will work that out in your hearts. He doesn't have to convince you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained, at least the knowledge that we already have. And then verse 17, we get into this week, so it gets real practical. Here's how we do this. Join with others in following my example. Brothers, take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For, as I've often told you before, and now say again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. What Paul's talking about here is the cross. He gives a good example and a bad example. Verse 17 is the good example. Many follow this pattern that we gave you. That's the cross-centered life. And then he says many, or some follow that pattern, many actually follow the bad example. The enemies of the cross. The people who go by their desires. Their God is their stomach. 
their destiny is destruction, and they're focused on earthly things. And so he gives us two examples. One's a bad example, one's a good example. The good example is the person who lives the cross-centered life. And if we're followers of Jesus, if we want to know Christ the way that Paul talks about knowing Christ in this passage, then we must live cross-centered lives. We must live a cross-centered life. And what does that mean? What's a cross-centered life? I'm using the word cross here synonymously with salvation, synonymously with the gospel. To live a cross-centered life means that the cross is at the center. Everything else revolves around it. Everything else goes to the cross. And so that means the cross isn't just something that happened for you to get saved, a lot of times Christians say, for you to enter into the kingdom, for you to become a Christian, but it impacts every area of the Christian life. You start the same way that you continue, by faith, and by faith in what? The cross. And then that means that the cross impacts not just your salvation, it impacts your job. It impacts your finances, it impacts your family, it impacts every relationship you have, it impacts your neighbors, it impacts your coworkers, it impacts your kids, it impacts your spouse, it impacts your singleness, it impacts everything revolves around the cross. And so in those situations, whatever situation you're in, whatever circumstance you're making a decision about, what, is the, what are the implications of the cross for my job? I have to make a decision about where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do, some kind of decision in your life. How does the cross impact that? Cross-centered Christian realizes that the cross impacts everything in their lives. The problem for many of us, is that we think once we're a Christian, we're kind of past the cross. And so we trust Jesus as our Savior. We come to the place where we realize we don't bring anything to the table. We can't possibly be good enough to please God. We realize that Jesus did that. He pleased God when he took on the wrath of God at the cross. We place our faith in the cross of Christ. We trust Jesus to be our Savior. And then we start feeling like, now I'm ready to move on. Now I'm willing to go to the next level. Now I, now I want to know the Christian maturity stuff. You ever heard a Christian say this? I want to go deep. That Bible study just wasn't deep, or that church just wasn't deep. I just want, I want to go deep now. Well, I don't even know what that means. Memorize genealogies from the book of Numbers. I don't know what, I don't know what it is. But so, it's not the cross, because now we've grown past the cross. I want to point out something to you in our context. What Paul's talking about here, he says this, All of us who are mature, verse 15, this is the meat, the cross. All of us who are mature should take such a view of such things that the Jesus Christ, knowing him, is the goal. And how do we do that? Cross-centered. You follow my pattern. What's the pattern that he's had in his life? You continue to see a cross-centered Christian in his life and those that he's talking about as well. So you don't grow past the cross. You never get over the cross. Tim Keller says it like this, that the cross, the gospel, using it synonymously, is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z of the Christian life. John Stott says this about the cross. It says, the cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. But we have to get near enough for it sparks to fall on us. And what many of us want to do is move past the cross. We don't realize that what we're doing is we're actually moving away from Jesus. You don't get over the cross. If you think that you have an adequate knowledge of the cross, I'm going to ask you a few questions that a guy named C.J. Mahaney asked in his book, which is titled, appropriately for this message, Living the Cross-Centered Life. He asks these questions. He says, if any of these things are true about you, it's like a doctor giving a diagnosis. If any of these things are true about you, then you probably need to come back to the cross. Do you often lack joy? Are you consistently growing spiritually and spiritual maturity? If not, does your love for God ever lack passion? Are you always looking for some new technique, new truth, or new experience to pull all the pieces together in your faith? If any of those things are true, 
you do not have an adequate view of the cross. It's just followers of Jesus Christ, we say that we're people of the word. The word, everything in the word is cross-centered. I don't know if you've noticed that. Our kids are doing what they call the gospel project and bridge kids. It's showing them how everything in the Bible points back to Jesus. What was Jesus' life all about? The cross. You go to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, man falls, sin enters the world. God's giving a curse to the man, to the woman, and to the serpent, to Satan himself. He's speaking to Satan in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, and he says this, And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, meaning her offspring, will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. You know what he's talking about? The cross. The foreshadowing of the cross. That's in the book of Genesis. You get to the end, the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 say this. John, the apostle speaking, says, Then I looked, heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And so worship in heaven revolves around the cross, the Lamb who was slain. So it starts in the book of Genesis. It goes through to the book of Revelation, the cross. And do you know what happens after Genesis? You start reading. And every time you see something happening, it's anticipation of the cross. Abraham's going to have a son. Do you know what everybody who's thinking, who hasn't read the New Testament, not New Testament believers, is thinking when Abraham's going to have a miraculously born son? Is he the seed that was being talked about in Genesis 3.15? Is Isaac the one? Because remember, and then they get to Genesis chapter 2, and, it's, and Hebrews tells us it's as though when Isaac was going to be sacrificed on the altar, it's as though he experienced a resurrection. So is he the one? Nope. Next child. Is he the one? Is he the seed? Is that the one? Even last week we talked about Ruth, and Ruth showing Hesed love. God kind of committed one-way kind of love. It's all pointing to the cross. They have a baby at the end of the book. Is he the one? No, nope. but then there's a line. It's the line of David. David comes. Is David the one? Nope, David's not the one. Going to come through the line of David. But even some of the words David says point us to the cross. Psalm 22. Does this sound familiar? It's David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later in Psalm, talks about dividing up his clothes and gambling over the clothes. Guess what? It's all pointing to the cross. You get to the prophets. The prophets continually talk about Jesus. He's going to be the one that's born in Nazareth. Look at Isaiah. Isaiah says this. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. 700 years before Jesus was born. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. It's by his wounds we are healed. It's talking about the cross. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The cross. And then you get to the life of Jesus. You have four books in the Bible. They're dedicated to what we call the Gospels. They're dedicated to the life and works of Jesus Christ. What are they all about? It's the cross. Getting a theme here? Starting to see this? The cross. It's all about the cross. So Jesus comes. He does some amazing things. And a lot of times people try to pluck those out and fulfill their agenda based on Jesus' life and try and say that was Jesus' agenda. Jesus' agenda was one thing. He looked resolutely, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, to Jerusalem, to the cross. He came here to go to the cross. He came here to seek and save the lost, and the way he did it was through the cross. He came here not to be served, but to serve, and the way he did it wasn't just by feeding people. That ultimately pointed to the cross. He did it by giving his life as a ransom for many to the cross. It was all about the cross. So a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll take Jesus and say, well, Jesus, I want to lead moral reform. Jesus was a moral reformer. Here's the deal. Jesus wasn't a moral reformer. He confronted sin, but he wasn't going door to door and telling people to clean up their act. So if your goal as a Christian is some kind of moral reformation in our culture, you're not on the same mission as Jesus. Because you lack the cross. 
If your goal is a political, some people say that, you know, if you're going to be real Christians are Republican. I don't know if you knew that or not. You've got to kind of hang around for long enough to figure that out. And you only watch Fox News. So that's kind of part of the deal. Third Matthew, like I don't know where it is in the Bible, but it doesn't come from Jesus' agenda. Do you know the people were expecting Jesus to lead a political revolution? And he didn't. He gets asked the question uh, about taxes, and he says, pay to Caesar what's Caesar's, and to God what's God. Do you know what was happening at that time? They were paying 80 to 90% of their income in taxes. It wasn't just bad leadership. Like, they didn't like the leadership. It was oppressive leadership, and Jesus did not free them from it because he didn't come for a political agenda. He also didn't come for social justice, which is real popular, especially for people about my age and younger, as they think that Jesus was a social revolutionary, and so he would feed the poor and put clothes on their backs and all that kind of stuff. Let me say this, just to be clear. Social justice is better than social injustice. It wasn't Jesus' agenda. Well, Jesus fed people, and he healed blind eyes, and he did all these things. If you feed someone and you leave out the cross, you've missed the mission of Jesus. If you go to the hospital and pray with every patient today and you're very kind to them and you don't talk about the cross, you've missed the mission of Jesus. Jesus fed people because he was pointing to the fact that he was the bread of life. Read the passage in context. He healed blind eyes because he was showing them that he was the light of the world. It all points to the cross. That verse I quoted a minute ago is Matthew chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And how did he serve? To give his life as a ransom for many. So here's the point. The cross was central to Christ. If we're his followers, shouldn't it be central to us? If he's our master and the cross was central to Jesus, shouldn't the cross be central to his followers? It should. Jesus didn't come so we could have a political agenda. It didn't come so we could have a social agenda. It didn't come so we could have a moral agenda. He came so that we could have a cross agenda. And the cross should be central in every area of our life. So how does it impact everything else? That's the question. How do we become these cross-centered Christians? Well, Paul tells us right here in our passage. It's an incredibly practical passage. Look at it. Verse 17. He says, join. First word, join. That's a word of connectivity. You don't do this on your own. Incredibly personal to ask you what's the most important thing in your life. But it's not private. This is a community experiment. Join with others. There's other people doing this. And following my example. And so here Paul is saying, don't just do what I say, do what I do. Paul's already told us he's not perfect. This isn't an ego trip here that he's saying. He's already said, I haven't arrived. I haven't obtained all this. But here's the one. I know that I'm doing this one thing. I know that I'm going after Christ with everything that I have. Follow that. There's other stuff in my life that's not perfect, and you don't want to do that, but you know it's one of the things that makes him a great example because he's struggling with the struggles we struggle with. He's suffering the sufferings we suffer. He knows what it's like to be tempted with sin and still be going after Jesus. He knows what it's like to fail from time to time and still be going after Jesus. Just follow my example, but it's not just him. Notice he goes on, and brothers, take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. So Paul's not just saying, I'm the only one that has this figured out. What he's saying is, follow the examples of other people that are cross-centered and Christians. And you see them in the Bible. He's probably, when he's talking to the Philippians, thinking of, and, and the church in Philippi was planted in Acts chapter 16. Silas was with him. So it wasn't just Paul that was flogged and beaten and thrown in prison and then sang hymns. It was also Silas. Think of the other guy like that. Would we be willing to sing hymns until the Philippian jailer comes to Christ? Think of the examples. Chapter 2 was all examples. I don't know if you noticed that or not. First example was Jesus, that we should have the same attitude as Jesus who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to, so we should be open-handed with our lives. He became a servant. We should be sacrificial servants, as an example. He became so obedient, he became obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Jesus, obviously, the ultimate example of cross-centered. Then Paul gives himself as an example next in Philippians chapter 2. Then he talks about a guy named Timothy. He says, I don't have anybody like Timothy. Here's what's so special about Timothy. He thinks about others' needs before his own. Then he talks about a guy named Epaphroditus. If you weren't here that week, you probably have never heard of this guy. Epaphroditus is willing to give his life for the sake of the gospel. And it wasn't because he had some martyr complex. He was willing to travel, put his own health at risk, to deliver money to Paul. So that Paul could keep preaching the gospel and he got sick and he's about to die. Not as dramatic as sometimes we'd like to make dying for the gospel be. But he was willing to. These are examples. Who are examples in your life of people that are cross-centered Christians? There aren't a lot. There are many of the bad examples. There are some, though, to follow of cross-centered Christians. And most stuff we learn by example. Very literally what Paul says here when he says, follow my example in the Greek, it means imitate me as I imitate Christ. Be a carbon copy of me. Imitate in this area of my life. Imitate me is what he's saying. And think about how many things you've learned by watching someone else and you imitate what they do. How many of our kids, they learn, they want, they do exactly, they don't, it's the stuff that drives me nuts about my kids, the stuff that I do. And some of you think about how many things you've learned by example that someone else set. I was thinking about it this week. I remember being a little kid and wanting to be able to play basketball. Uh, vertically challenged didn't quite happen for me. And um, I remember when I was a kid, the best basketball player, almost no questions asked, was Michael Jordan. That was maybe Larry Bird, was Magic Johnson, they were out there. There's other good players. And for, I'm dating myself, I know that, totally get it. Some of you, maybe it's LeBron, whoever the different person is for you now. But Michael Jordan was awesome. They had commercials, I want to be like Mike, and he'd, you know, little kids everywhere jumping around. What I used to do is I'd go out in the driveway with a mini basketball, because I could grab a hold of that, a lowered rim, and I'd go to the hoop, and Michael Jordan had this signature thing that he would do when he was going to go dunk. He would stick his tongue out. Have you ever seen that or not in highlight films? And so I'd go running. You know, a white kid with a mini basketball on a six-foot hoop. Go jump. Ah! Like it's going to give me some extra vertical leap. You know, maybe it'll add an inch if I stick my tongue out of my mouth. Go from one inch to two-inch vertical. I don't know. But I was copying. I was imitating because he was the best. And so I wanted, maybe if I do the things that the best person does, then maybe I'll become better. How many things have you learned that way? Did you learn how to drive by watching someone else? You didn't just read a book on how to drive, right? Like you did it, and you watched somebody, and you did it, and you watched somebody, and golf if you golf at all some of you are, play different sports have different skills in your job you probably there are internships apprenticeships the idea is you watch someone else who's more of a master at this thing and you follow their example as you learn how to do this thing and why don't we do that in our christian lives some of you do some of you have i've never even thought to have a mentor a christian mentor but you think about it, i think in my life i've been so blessed with this I've had different mentors for different things. I remember when I first became a Christian, 18 years old, started trying to tell my friends about Jesus, and it would not go the way that I would hope it would go. We'd start talking about everything under the sun. Talk, I'm telling you about how God changed my life. Next thing I know, we're talking about God, then we're talking about politics, and we're talking about all these questions. Some guy in Africa I've never even thought about before that's never heard the gospel. Oh, what do I do? And so what I would do is I'd take him to a friend of mine who was really good at sharing the gospel. His name was Mike. And I'd say, hey, you need to come talk to this guy. And then I would watch Mike share the gospel with them. You know what I learned? Focus on the cross. You don't have to answer every question somebody asks you. You don't have to know about every bad event that's ever taken place in the world. You don't have to know about the African guy that's never heard the gospel. Talk to them about their relationship with Jesus as they are hearing the gospel. And I got better at evangelism by watching someone else do evangelism. I remember when I was in seminary, I had another friend that whenever I was making a big life decision, I would go ask him, you know, should I do this? Should I do that? I'm thinking about doing these things. And one day I just said, why do I always want to ask you for advice? How did you become so wise? And then he said to me, I had a mentor who was really wise, 
who read a proverb every morning and spent time praying. Proverbs are wisdom literature, and that's how God speaks to us is through his word, and then we speak to him through prayer. So I learned by watching and asking. And so you want to do that? You want to be a cross-center Christian? Very simple. Here's an assignment. I don't oftentimes give you assignments. Find somebody you can watch this week. Ask them to be men- mentor you. And let me tell you something else. You don't need just one mentor. You need multiple mentors for different things. Because no one person's good at everything. So you might find one person. Maybe you want to become a better husband. Find somebody who's a really good husband. But they might not be a great theologian. So find somebody else who knows the scriptures really well. Find somebody else who's maybe a prayer warrior. You find different people that are good at different things, and you have multiple mentors. Because one thing can be a problem if you just have one, is you start to idolize that person. You think, well, I, I need to be just like them. No, you're following Jesus. Imitate them in the ways that they imitate Jesus and forget the other stuff. And none of us have it all figured out. Paul even says, I haven't obtained all this. I'm not perfect. But in this thing, go after Jesus. And get a mentor this week if you're serious about being a cross-centered Christian. That's your assignment. There's a lot of bad examples out there, though, so be careful on who you choose. Look at the next part of the passage. Paul says, "For as I've often told you before, verse 18, and now say again, even with tears. So he's emotional when he says this. This is the only place where Paul talks about crying in the present tense. He said, I've warned you with tears before. He's talked about how he's emotional for these folks. But here he's saying, he's, as he thinks about these people, he's weeping. As he's writing this letter, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And then he goes to describe them. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. And their focus, their mindset, is on earthly things. And so why is Paul heartbroken over these folks? Why is he thinking that the Philippians would be tempted to follow them? Why does he put this warning here? And let me tell you something. He's not talking about false teachers. These aren't the people that he talked about at the beginning of the book. He's not talking about doctrine. He says many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. The reason why the Philippians would be tempted to follow these folks because he's talking about people that are inside the church. Talking about professed believers in Jesus. These aren't people that are knowingly opposing the cross of Christ. These aren't people that are saying Christianity is not the right way. You should follow a different way. Just be a moral person. There is no God. Whatever the different philosophies are, do what feels good to you. You only get to go around once. Grab what you got. It's not that kind of person. These are people that profess Christ. They can probably talk a really good game. And they don't realize this is who they are. They don't even realize that they're enemies of the cross. In fact, if you ask them, some of them may say, my one thing is following Jesus. Because in their mind, they think that's true. But Paul's saying, look at their lives. And here's the reality. He gives a shocking statement to start. Their destiny is destruction. They're professed Christians, but he's saying they're on their way to hell. If you're an evangelical follower of Jesus, you believe that hell exists. Now, I realize in the audience decides there are some people who will be like, I believe in heaven, not hell, and you pick and choose. The Bible says that hell exists. The Bible says it's a terrible place. Jesus talks about it as a place of eternal torment. There's weeping, gnashing of teeth, and there's constant burning fire that's never quenched, not even by the person who's in it. It's awful. If you're an evangelical Christian, you believe in that. But the reality is that most of us, while we might believe that hell is real and there's some people out there that go there, we never think that it's someone we know. Example, have you ever been to a funeral where somebody stands up, pastor stands up, whoever stands up, and says, you know what, this guy was a jerk. We all know where he's at. Let me tell you why you shouldn't go there. No one ever does that at a funeral, do they? I've spoken at funerals. I've never done that. I've been to funerals. I've never heard anyone do that. But there are times when you know 
If you're honest, that guy was a jerk. He was a slime ball. He was a cheat. He's a liar, whatever the thing is. And then we're up here talking about how nice he was and whatever thing. One time he gave some socks to somebody or whatever, you know, some story. We find something good to say because we don't want to think that anyone we know is actually going to hell. Much less ourselves. And what Paul he's saying through tears here is this. It's some of you that I'm writing to that are on your way to hell. And here's how you know. He describes it. Your God is your stomach. You can say whatever you want to say in your mind. You can think. He doesn't ask anything. He doesn't talk about their doctrinal statement. He doesn't talk about what their beliefs are. He doesn't say what they'd write down that they say they believe. He doesn't talk about an experience at church. Did they walk an aisle? Did they raise a hand? He says, you look at their life. And when you look at their life, what you see is their God is their stomach. And what he's saying here is not gluttony. It doesn't exclude gluttony. It would include that. What he's saying is they're driven by their appetites. The word that's translated stomach here is the same word that's used in Romans chapter 16 and verse 18. It's translated like this. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. They talk a good game. But when you look at their lives, what you see is they're actually feeding themselves. And so it would be a service to yourself, to each one of us, to ask yourself, am I this person? Not to think about, oh, I know somebody. Like, I know who that is. I know who this passage is talking about. No, no. So ask, yourself, ask yourself, is this me? Because here's the reality about appetites. Appetites are not driven by the mind. Just think about this. You know facts about eating that you violate all the time. I do. I know that I shouldn't have a snack at bedtime, but if my wife turns on Triple D right before we go to bed, I'm eating something. I might not eat what's on the TV show, but I'm going to eat something. Something's going to happen. Do you know why? I know that I shouldn't do it. I know I shouldn't eat after a certain time. I know I understand all that. But I, my appetite, I'm driven. We know, everybody here knows you shouldn't go to the fair on a diet, right? Anybody know that? Don't go to the fair if you're on a diet. Because what's going to happen is you know in your head a triple fried bacon wrapped Twinkie is not a good idea. But when they put the powdered sugar on it, you see somebody eating it, I'm getting an amen up here in the front. You want it. Appetites are not driven by the mind. So you might know that Jesus should be the number one thing in your life. You might know that he's the only one that will satisfy. You might know, and we think because we're products of the enlightenment, that reason will get us out of any situation. You can think all the right thoughts and make the worst decisions. Just look at your life. We've all done it. It's not an issue of knowledge. It's an issue of desire. And when you think about your desires, what is your desire? When Paul says about knowing Christ, he uses desire language. I want to know Christ. Is that your number one want? Your longing of your soul, like a deer for water, do you want God? Or is it something else? You really like it to be God, so in your head you say that. But the reality is you're driven by your desire. What does your life look like? And this is serious stuff. Paul's pleading here through tears. Their destiny is destruction. Here's what happens. Professed Christians. So we're not just talking about some people, random people out there. We live this way. And we go after, we say the right, we know the right language to use. We talk a good game. We deceive naive people. Totally get that. But our appetites point to the fact that we're going after something else. And when we go after something else, what we end up finding out is that it never satisfies. Here's the thing about an appetite. It's never satisfied. It only grows. You can satisfy it in the moment. Sin's always pleasant in the moment. But then you get hungry again, don't you? So I have that late night snack after watching Triple D. And then I wake up in the morning I'm like, man, I need some breakfast. I eat breakfast, and then lunchtime comes rolling around. I need to eat. The appetite grows, but it's never satisfied. 
what happens for us as followers of Jesus is we know the Jesus thing, we say the Jesus things, we pray the prayer, totally got that done, but then we go after whatever it is. Shopping, sex, achievement, whatever the things are. And we get levels of them and then satisfied for a moment and then it comes back, you know, the car's really nice when you bought the new car until it's not. And the affair was really fun until it isn't. And the amount of money you never thought you'd make was great until it wasn't enough anymore. And so our appetites, they just grow. They just keep growing. And eventually you realize none of this is going to satisfy, and that's pretty hopeless. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we're without hope and without God when we're like that. I was reading a, a book this week. It's been in the study as a recommended book before by Chuck Swindoll in Philippians. And if you don't know Chuck Swindoll, he's got a radio ministry called Insight for Living, and he told an extreme story, kind of a dramatic story of this in the book. And uh, he talked about how uh, he, they had received a letter from a woman that was um, writing in, because periodically people write in thank you notes for different things that have taken place as a result of the radio ministry. And her story was that she had gotten to the place where she was at the end of her rope. Life was not going well. She kept trying different things. Nothing was satisfying her. She checked into a hotel room, sat on the edge of the bed, and began to rehearse her life, thinking about all the relationships she had had with different men and how they had failed, and that left her empty. Thought about her abortions she had, some of her biggest regrets in her life, because whether you believe that abortion is right or wrong, ask anybody who's had one, they're dark. And they bring regret. And she did this all night. Dawn came, it was starting to, the sun was starting to come up, and she reached in her purse and grabbed a loaded pistol, stuck it in her mouth, closed her eyes, she's trembling, and the alarm clock went off, and on came Insight for Living, Chuck Swindoll's uh, radio show. And she heard the music start to fill the room, and she started to listen, and then he preached a 30-minute message on joy, joy like she had never experienced and she trusted jesus christ as her savior called into the radio station said while she was on the phone talked to one of the people that answers the 1-800 number there and said that while she had trusted christ as her savior told them about that says i can still taste the steel from the barrel of the gun that was in my mouth but now i want christ that's an extreme example but for many people it's I'm going to the next thing. If I, I'm going to try the next relationship with a guy. I'm going to go, so maybe if I buy this product, maybe if I got to this position at work, maybe if I had this experience, maybe if I just had a different family, maybe if I just, the different job, if I lived in a different city. And, and our God is our stomach. And it doesn't mean if you've ever sinned that you're not a Christian. You look at your life, and if your life is driven by an appetite for things apart from Christ. At least ask yourself, because notice the text says, many, many. You know, when you read about Judgment Day, if you start studying about the second coming of Christ, what you'll find out is there are going to be a lot of surprises. Of people that we think weren't that are, and people that we thought that were, and they're not. Just look at the passage. It's a scary passage. where professed Christians, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, professed Christians. Did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many miracles in your name? He says, I didn't know you. You did some stuff. So just looking at your deeds isn't enough. How about your wants? Your desires? I think I shared a testimony last week. I don't know if you were here last week or not, but Pastor Jed, um, just he was leading our congregation in worship, felt led to have people share random testimonies. It wasn't planned. And uh, he said, open mic, you want to come up here and praise God for... Whatever he's doing in your life, then you can do that. And second service, there was a guy, he's a friend of mine. He told me I could share a story anytime I want. His name's Dale. Dale came up and just gave a one-sentence testimony. He said, I'm thankful that God changes desires. Dale was a guy, had a reading disorder, disability, wasn't able to read well, 
Then started reading the scriptures. God cured his reading disability, heard a story about what repentance is one day. Repentance is stopping doing your sin and turning to God. Did that, and God changed his desires. He had desires that were all fleshly desires that were ultimately ruining his life, and God's given him a desire for him. That's why he devours the word now. What does the scripture say? Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not knowing in your head, if you just knew the right facts, if you just made this walk down the aisle, if you just did this formula, you've got to experience them yourself. And then guess what happens? I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know, fellow, I'll even suffer if it helps me know Christ. You know why? Because it's through suffering they start to identify with the cross. He was the suffering servant. He was the man of sorrows, that Isaiah passage, and the verses that I didn't read. And so I want to know him. And if I want to know him, then I'll even suffer to know him. Bring on the suffering God. Are you ready? What are your desires? Paul weeps for these people because their desires are not Christ. But they're in the church. And then he gives a big contrast, verse 20. It's like good news, bad news, good news is the outline of this passage. Verse 20. But, contrast, our, in the Greek, that's, the word is positioned in a way to make it emphatic. Now we're not talking about the many whose destiny is destruction, but our citizenship is in heaven. Speaking of the Philippians, the Philippians are Roman citizens that live in a colony that's separate from Rome. They live in Philippi. Many of them have never been to Rome. Many of them will never even go to Rome. But they were Roman citizens, and they took great pride in being Roman citizens. And he says to them, no, your citizenship is in a place you've never been, in a place you've never seen. It's in heaven. And instead of having your mind on earthly things, he says, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our mind is on heavenly things, eternally focused. Christ-centered, cross-centered Christian is eternally focused. Who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, same power that raised him from the dead, will transform our lowly bodies. So they will be like his glorious body. Just one of the things to think about. If you want to think about the physical world, he's given us contrast. He just talked about their mind is on earthly things. You want to eagerly await a savior. You got any aches and pains? Ever get a hangnail or cancer? Or arthritis, or migraines. He transforms all that. And you're awaiting that because you know what that is? That's the prize. When Paul was talking about earlier, I fix my eyes on the prize. I press on toward the goal. I'm going towards the finish line. This is what he's talking about Christ coming back. And so he says here, eagerly await a Savior. Cross centered Christians eagerly await a Savior. I was so convicted by this this week. On Monday, when I opened up the passage, had just wrapped up, you know, taught, I was blown away by Proverbs. I loved Proverbs 31. I regretted the fact that we were going to preach it, to be honest with you. And then I preached, I learned so much, and was realized how rich God's word was. I was so excited. And I opened up on Monday, Philippians chapter 3, and I read that and thought, I didn't think about Jesus coming back today. I got up and thought to myself, you need to get another message ready. You need to study the next passage. You've got a staff meeting. You've got and the things that I have to do today. I wasn't eagerly awaiting. I felt convicted. Because if it's that good, why don't I wake up every morning and go, is today the day? Is today the day? He could come back at any moment. It says that he comes back like a thief in the night. It's like lightning in the sky. When he comes back, all the sufferings turn to glory. All the temptations are done. Sin's done. Any imperfections in our body are changed. We get a heavenly body. All the struggles here, they're done. You look towards that. We should eagerly await that. Think about things that people eagerly await. Kids on Christmas morning, six-year-old, seven-year-old on Christmas. They've had, they had enough Christmases to know about what's going to happen the next day, but they're not tainted or jaded yet, and they're not hardened by materialism yet. They're just going to this spot where it's like they're so excited about the next day. 
or people uh, who are going to get married, newly engaged young couples that are going to get married. I remember I went to a Christian college. I remember when I was in, uh, in school, friends getting engaged and saying, I want Jesus to come back after I get married, as soon as I get married. Here's why, because they wanted to have sex first. It was a Christian college, and they were waiting. They were eagerly awaiting sex. And then Jesus could come, because they thought the sex would be better. The, Jesus coming back is going to be better than sex. I don't know if you've ever had a pastor tell you that or not, but it's going to be better. Are you eagerly awaiting? I think about the, have you ever seen the videos, they never get old, where there's a military person that comes back and they surprise their family. They go to a classroom with their kids or they're like, the, you know, the wife will have sung the Star Spangled Banner and they turn around, there's their husband. You know, this like, every time you watch it, sporting event, school, wherever they're at, it's, it never gets old because they expect them to come back. They don't know when they're coming back and when they see them, it's overwhelming. One of my favorite passages about the second coming of Jesus is when Jesus is speaking to his disciples. They've been with him for three years of their lives. In John chapter 14 through 16, he starts to promise them the Holy Spirit's going to come and the work that they're going to do while they're here. And he's prepping them, I'm leaving. And that's going to be hard. Anytime someone leaves, it's going to be hard. He says this in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I'll come back and I'll take you to be with me so that you will be where I am. So I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. I've been preparing a place for you. What happens in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascends into heaven is the angel comes to them and says, don't stand here and watch the clouds. Live your life. Be productive. You've got a mission that you're supposed to do while you're here. But he's coming back. He's going to come back the same way that you saw him leave. And you know what he's doing in the meantime? He's preparing a place for you. Let your mind think about that for a minute. Do you ever watch HGTV? I watch HGTV. Uh, and they've got these handsome carpenters on there. Jesus was a carpenter. I don't know if you knew that or not. Just saying. HGTV, do you know what they can do in seven days on HGTV? It's crazy, renovating a house or even building a whole house from scratch, and they'll build a beautiful, it'll be an amazing place. And so Jesus created the world in seven days. And he spent about 2,000 years preparing a place for you. What do you think that's going to be like? And he says, I'm going to come back to you so that you can then come and be with me where I am in this place where I've been preparing a place for you. And then I don't think about it. How can I not think about that? That's the finish line. That's the prize. When Paul says that I'm willing to suffer, any suffering I experience here is going to turn into glory there. Any suffering I experience here is going to give fellowship with Christ here. Unlike I could experience apart from the suffering, I'm willing to suffer. And in my successes, I give the glory to him. And in my weaknesses, he's made known. And how, the temptations will be done and the struggles will be done. And so I await a savior from this place who's going to come. Like a soldier, you know he's going to come. Like a thief in the night, you don't know when, but you know it's going to happen eagerly await a savior from this place it's going to be a glorious day for a believer it's going to be equally as terrible for those whose destiny is destruction it's going to be amazing for those who are cross-centered christians it's going to be devastating for everyone else and so that's why god waits waiting for some to repent waiting that more will repent that's why we're still here that's why when people look at our lives, they shouldn't see somebody who's voting the right way, moral, more moral than someone else, someone that's doing social justice. They should see someone whose life revolves around the cross because the cross is what we're pointing them to because that's their only hope. Let's pray. Father, we humble our hearts before you. We bow before you. You're the maker. You're in control and sovereign and you are God and we are not. I pray that we'd all be willing to confess that you're a God and we're not. 
And I pray for some of us that, that we would just start begging you that you would become our desire. Some of us here have professed to follow your son Jesus, but when we look at our lives, our God is our stomach. It's our appetites. We go after what we think is best. We do what we want, and we go after things that aren't going to satisfy other people and things and all kinds of stuff. And oh God, will you change our desires? Will you please change us? And some of you need to spend just some moments right now in repentance and reflection on the Lord and talking to him and pursuing him. Beg him to change your desires. He does that. That's what he did with Dale. That's what he did with Paul. He does that. And follow their examples. Some of us, God, will you give us mentors? Will you lay on our minds people that we need to ask? Can I, will you be my mentor? Can I follow you around? Most people that you're going to ask to mentor you, by the way, they're too busy. Just start following them around in their life and what they're already doing. And some of you need to trust Christ as your Savior. You can do that right now. We're going to take communion in a couple minutes. Don't take communion. You're not getting special favor from God. You didn't get favor from God, blessing from God because you showed up at church today. You need a relationship with Him. Without Christ, you're without hope. So you need to ask Christ to be your Savior. If you want to ask Christ to be your Savior, just confess your sins to Him. Say, Jesus, will you be my Savior? I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you rose from the dead. I believe those things. You're going to place your faith in them. You place your faith in them right now. And you can pray and do that. If you do that, then I just ask on your connection card before you leave, please let, let us know that. Just mark that. You can drop it on the offering box before you leave. Lord, we just, we really need you. We don't just say those words when we sing songs and preach messages. We need you. Thank you for meeting our needs. Thank you for your provisions in our life. Thank you for people. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the opportunity to sing praises to you. Thank you for wanting to meet with us. Please meet with us right now. In Jesus' name I pray.